Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, and I'm the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. For those of you that are new to the show, I'm just going to take a second and explain a little bit about who the heck we are. Um, Bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia that we can go ahead and remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and really help people who are diagnosed and caring for loved ones continue to live with purpose. And um, it's just been such an honor to to do the show and talk with people all over the world and see, you know, what they're doing uh, to, to shift our care culture. It's just, I find it um, just amazing. I also want to thank you all for helping us become the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. We did not by any means do that alone. Um, You guys did it through your likes, your clicks, your shares. And so I would encourage you to continue to do that because we all have people in our own circles that are dealing with this disease but really haven't kind of come out of the closet yet. They're not ready to talk. But the more information that people have, the more normal it appears to be able to deal with this, the easier it's going to be for them. So please continue to share not only the radio show, um, but our blog, our um, dementia chats, which are free webinars, which anybody can attend, um, and they're also recorded, and our new Conscious Caring resource uh, video interviews as well. Um, again, the more we get out there, the better for the better for everyone. I also want to let people know that if they are interested in becoming a guest here on Alzheimer Speaks, just give me a shout out. You can uh, you can go to our website and just click on the big uh, contact button and um, you know give me a shout out. Uh, we we want everyone's voice to be heard. So if you are diagnosed, if you are personally caring for someone, if you're a business professional. If you're an author, a movie director, a songwriter, um, you know, if you're an advocate, um, we want to hear from everybody. Uh, pharmaceutical research, um, nobody is barred. We really believe in all voices need to be heard because we're in this together. We know this disease knows no barriers, and, um, and it's worldwide. So, uh, again, please reach out to me if there's an interest there. I also want to give a shout out just to Fresh Books. If any of you haven't got your taxes done yet and you're looking for something to get you a little more organized, you can have a 30 day f- uh, free trial. Um, all you have to do is go to gofreshbooks.com forward slash alive. That's gofreshbooks.com forward slash alive. You also have a, another um, 
freebie here that we can give you, and it's through audible.com. They have just a great selection of lots of books that you can go ahead and download, and you can get your free Audible um, book today by just going to audibletrial.com forward slash social. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash social. And, um, you know, hopefully you will enjoy that. Let's go ahead and get to our guest today. Um, our first guest is Jennifer Brush, and she is a national, nationally recognized speech and language pathologist known for her work on the area of memory disorders for people with dementia. She is also the director of Brush Development Company. Welcome. How are you doing, Jennifer? I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to to have you on the show and talk about your your new book, uh, Spaced Retrieval, Step-by-Step. And your co-author is with us, uh, Jeanette Benegas, and she is an assistant professor of communication disorders at Westchester University um, in Pennsylvania. So welcome, Jeanette. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Good. Um, Again, thrilled to have you both here. Um, Your book has just such great information, so I just kind of want to get started on our questions so that we can hopefully get through these all in an hour um, because it's just fascinating. So, Jen, I'm going to throw the first question out to you. You know, your book is called Spaced Retrieval, Step-by-Step. Can you tell us what, what exactly is spaced retrieval? Sure. Spaced retrieval is a fancy name for a memory training strategy that's really very simple. And we'll, we'll get to talk about it today and explain how it works. But it's a strategy that's used to teach people with memory loss how to remember either new information or to remember information that they knew before. So our, our goal is to help people that have cognitive impairment be able to store information in their long-term memory again so they can better recall important details such as um, the name of a family member or when to take their medication. Um, and it's a strategy that gives people practice at remembering. If, if there's one thing to take home from our conversation today, and we'll give you lots of information about it, but people with dementia can learn and they can retain information, we just help, have to help them practice. Mm-hmm. Based retrieval is, is really a technique that in a very particular way helps people practice at retrieving information. Okay, great. Uh, Jeanette, anything you want to add to that? I don't think so, no. Jennifer covered covered it very well. Okay, great. Um, Jen, I also wanted to just throw this one out to you as well. Um, since you mentioned that it's a, a memory kind of intervention, can you explain to our listeners how, how memory works as a whole? Maybe we should start there. That, that is a great place to start. Memory is a pr- actually a process of three steps. So the first step is what we call encoding, and that's really the process when the mind perceives and and registers information. Then we store information. We keep that encoded information in in good shape so we can remember it over time. And then lastly, 
we retrieve information. So that's where we can recover that stored information um, on, on demand. Um, when the brain is damaged, a, a person's not able to gain access to the information that's stored. And so spaced retrieval is an intervention that helps them to access that information by practicing the information repeatedly. And we do that, this, the, the term is called spaced retrieval. So we have that retrieval part, we practice recalling it. That spaced part means that we space out our intervals of practice. So for example, we might practice recalling information with someone and then wait 30 seconds and then give them practice recalling the information again, and then wait a minute, and then practice again after two minutes of time. So we're spacing out the the opportunities for retrieving information. Um, okay, well that's good. I was, um, I was interested because I always feel like I'm tripping when I say spaced and, you know, with a, a past tense. Um, yeah. Retrieval. And so I, I was really interested in that. Um, and, and it makes sense when you explain it there. Um, now, there are a lot of different types of memory. Can you can you tell us about, you know, the the different types of memory that we need to be cognizant of um, in order to be able to deal with them? Sure. There are really three um, basic types of memory. So we have sensory memory, and that refers to those initial processes of storing any information that's perceived through our senses. And this is memory that just lasts for a very short period of time because it's constantly replaced by new data as our senses work. Um, and so sensory memory is divided into five memory types. We have sensory memory for each of our senses that we have. So that's one type. Another type of memory is called working memory, and that a lot of people refer to that as short-term memory. That's what we're currently thinking about. So, for example, if you try to solve a, a math problem in your mind, you need to do some calculations first before you reach the solution. So these calculations are stored temporarily in your working memory. So... That's what we're focusing our attention on at this minute. The third type of memory is a little more complex than the other two. This is our long-term memory, and this is our ability to remember things um, for a very long time or even our entire lifespan. And this is where it gets a little more complicated because there's two forms of long-term memory. So we have a knowledge of how to do something or a knowledge of skills, and we have a knowledge of what I call a knowledge of that, or your knowledge of facts. Um, we usually use these two brain systems together, but they're in different areas of the brain. So our knowing that, our, our knowledge of our facts, that's called declarative memory, and that's information about the events of our life, um, the time and the place, when an event occurred, the name of something, and that is impaired very early on in Alzheimer's disease. This is the first type of the first memory system, 
the first long-term memory system to be impaired. So I'm sure you are familiar with someone with Alzheimer's disease who's asked the same question over and over again. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's often because of a deficit in this declarative memory system. And so one thing that we can use spaced retrieval about that we can talk about today is, is how we can help people remember these questions, the information that they ask repeatedly. Now, there's another type of long-term memory, and that's our knowledge of how. Um, this is called non-declarative, or sometimes people call it procedural memory. It's memory that's very automatic. So if you think of skills that are developed early in childhood, um, things that are habits that are practiced over and over again, procedural memory. Um, driving a car uses procedural memory. Washing your hair, um, riding a bike, playing. These are all things that become habits that become very automatic. And what many people don't realize is that this type of memory is a preserved ability in Alzheimer's disease. It is spared long through the course of the disease. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, you know, for people to, to think, because we, I, I, we just don't break it down like that um, and mm-hmm. think of the different types and how it can how it can impact um, someone. Um, Jeanette, was there anything that you wanted to add to the different types of memory? No, I like how Jen um, really discussed the non-declarative procedural memory well because that's the foundation of why space retrieval works. Okay, great. Um, So this one I'm going to throw to you, Jeanette. Um, Basically, you guys are saying that people still have memory abilities even though they seem to be declining, correct? Correct. Um, So as Jen said, there's declarative and and non-declarative memory, but knowing how and knowing that. um, And as she said, they're not affected equally. So people with Alzheimer's disease are able to to complete some of the tasks she said, like brushing your teeth or doing laundry, those all involve procedural memory. The tasks um, are automatic. We consider most procedural memory tasks automatic. Um, So some more examples, if perhaps you're sitting at your computer, you might be able to type and, and know where the keys are without looking at the keyboard. You've developed that skill through procedural memory. Most of our activities of daily living are included in this category. Um, When we get dressed every morning, we follow a very familiar routine. Very rarely do we think about what sock we put on first, um, what arm we put into our sweater first, um, what side of our mouth we brush first with our toothbrush. And um, we probably do those things the same way every time. And... If we have to stop and think about the answers to those questions, um, those tasks are likely taking place with little conscious awareness on our behalf. Um, So these are habits and associations that are built by repeatedly doing them over and over again and reinforcing those steps that are involved in the process. The more we do something, the better we get at it, the less we need to think about the task at hand. Um, so space re- retrieval starts to tap into that by 
spacing out the practice and giving practice over and over again. Okay. So in terms of um, working with somebody who has the disease, um, is, is this something that in earlier stages they'll be able to understand themselves, or is this something that is more beneficial for someone who's caring for someone with dementia? And I'll throw that I to Jeanette. That, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and I'll throw that one back to Jeanette as well. Okay. Um, I think that as long as someone can engage, it can be helpful. So if someone is in early stage, I find it very useful because often they're aware of what they might be forgetting. Um, and sometimes it becomes bothersome. So we can just introduce it as a way to practice and say, you know, when, when you were in college, mom, or when you were in high school, you, you studied to remember and, and we're going to practice remembering where you keep your glasses. So next time you need to put them on, you know where they're at. And, and often people will appreciate that practice and, and understand the process. And in later stages, sometimes the person might not understand exactly what's happening, um, but space retrieval can still be very successful. Okay. Um, Jennifer? Yes, even, mm-hmm. even with clients that have advanced memory loss, um, they don't need to understand the process. They don't even need to remember the practice. They still benefit from practicing recalling the information, and they're still able to improve their memory without having to understand why they're doing it. Okay. Okay. And, and I might add to that as well. Um, the, the procedure can actually be very rewarding. Um, for someone who's maybe in more advanced stages, they, those people have experienced great loss repeatedly. And um, space retrieval has some reward built into it because people are succeeding at things perhaps they haven't succeeded at in a while. Um, so, so that's a good part of it, too, that, that internal reward that um, failure doesn't always have to happen. Okay. Okay, that makes that makes sense. Um, can you, Jeanette, give us some examples of how do you implement implement a spaced retrieval? So, there's a couple steps to implementing spaced retrieval. The very first thing we need to do is identify the person's need or desire. Um, a need might be something like remembering to lock your wheelchair brakes before you stand up. That's a safety issue. We can't have someone falling and and getting hurt. Um, That's an important need. Um, Or a desire is maybe someone desires to know what time Jeopardy comes on or or what time a loved one will be coming to visit or remembering an address or a phone number. Um, Both are very important. Needs and desires remain relevant throughout the course of the disease. So we just need to identify the needs and desires. If more than one is identified, um, you just need to choose one because we we use space retrieval to teach one concept at a time. Um, Jen and I often recommend if there's a safety issue, sometimes that might be the most important thing to address first and then move on from there. But it's it's a very personal thing and it's um, individualized. 
So the next thing that we do after we have identified the person's need is we identify a question that we'll ask them that will generate the information that we want them to practice. So we think of a question that will generate the response that we want um, the person to learn. So I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, If you're teaching someone to learn your name, you would say, uh, the lead question would be, what my, what's my name? And the response would be Jennifer, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have identified a need that someone needs to lock their wheelchair brakes before they can stand, okay, so they don't fall, the lead question might be, what do you do before you stand? And the response may be, um, I lock my brakes. Okay. okay. So we develop, we, we determine the need, we determine the question that we're going to ask and the response that we want the person to practice, okay? And we try to make the, both the questions and the response very short and direct and to the point. We want it to be um, easy for the person. And we begin by telling the person what we're going to learn, okay? So I might say to you, Lori, today we're going to practice remembering my name. My name is Jennifer. What's my name? And you want the person to say Jennifer. Mm -hmm. So that we're telling the person what we're going to learn. We're giving them the information. We're giving them a question. So we're asking for an opportunity for them to respond. And then we're giving practice at that that recall or response. Not enough to tell someone information. That's not an efficient way of teaching someone something. We want to give them practice at recalling that information. So we first we start with what's called immediate recall. Okay. Then we wait five seconds by just talking to the person, and then we would ask them again, "What's my name?" Mm-hmm. And they would say Jennifer, and we'd say, "That's right." I'm glad you remembered. We're going to be practicing that today, so I'll ask you about that some more. And we continue to practice, and we space out the practice intervals. So at 5 seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And then we begin to double the time intervals. So we ask them after 1 minute, after 2 minutes, after 4 minutes, after 8 minutes. And during the time in between practices, you can do anything. You can, you, can, you can be on a walk. You can be driving in the car. You can be washing the dishes. And so it's, it's um, a very easy strategy to practice. You're giving that person successful opportunities at recalling the information. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, sometimes the person will make a mistake and they won't recall the information correctly. And what that, when that happens, we don't tell the person that they're wrong. We don't try and, and um, we don't give them any kind of negative feedback. Mm-hmm. But we um, tell them the correct information right away. And then we give them the opportunity um, to answer the question immediately. And then what we do is we shorten the next time interval. So, for example, if they made a mistake after two minutes, 
we will not increase to four minutes. We'll go back to a one-minute interval so they have um, an opportunity for um, success. So, Jeanette, is there anything that you would like to add to what Jennifer just was talking about? Yeah. So I will give an example of teaching a behavior. Um, Earlier I mentioned locking wheelchair brakes. Mm -hmm. So we'll use that as the example. Uh, That would be a need or possibly a desire. So the lead question we might set up is, what do you do before you stand up? The response we might create would be, I lock my brakes. Um, So we would begin by educating the person on what we will be asking and the response that we would want the person to say and the physical behavior of locking the brakes and then standing up. Um, So we want to make sure that the person understands the question, understands the response, and is actually physically able to lock the brakes. Sometimes they get jammed, sometimes it's too hard. Um, So make sure all of that is achievable. And then we just ask the lead questions. What do you do before you stand up? And you would expect an immediate response, I lock the brakes. Um, The person might then person might need prompted. So we may say, okay, show me how that's done. And we'll give the person some time to do that. And if it's all done successfully, then um, we start implementing the, um, the time intervals. So we would wait five seconds. We would introduce the lead question again. What do you do before you stand up? We expect the response. I lost my brakes. The person may perform it, and if he or she doesn't, then we just prompt, show me how that's done. And um, we we work all the way up through the time intervals. So, again, that's 5 seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, 2 minutes, 4 minutes, 8, and then 16 minutes. Um, As long as the person's successful, we keep advancing. Um, If the person gets it wrong or maybe is struggling to remember the response, we would just um, interject and, and say, actually, you lock your brakes and show me how that's done. And um, we would redirect, re-educate, and then go to the last successful time interval, basically by cutting the time in half. Okay. So um, in terms of utilizing um, this step, you, is your target more professionals or families? Um, in anyone can use it. Um, so it, it, the, the strategy really began in the 1800s with education, um, and teachers were using it to help students study for tests. Um, but through the years with, with advanced research, we've start, started extending that to people who have memory loss, not just Alzheimer's disease. Um, and, and there's lots of research that shows Um, Family members can be very successful as well as professionals. Okay. I I wasn't Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. To say oftentimes we, you know, Jeanette and I are are both speech-language pathologists, so oftentimes we'll introduce this during a speech therapy session and then um, show family members how to do this to um, follow up and carry this over at home. But both of us have taught... 
um, all different healthcare professionals, um, family members, nurses and nursing assistants in long-term care, um, children can do this with older adults. Um, so it's a very, once you learn how to do it, it's such a simple technique. It's very stress-free that it's easy for any, anyone to have success with. Okay. So um, one of the, you know, one of the examples that you give in the book here, um, which I think hits families so hard is what's my name, you know, mm-hmm. and so you have an example in here where I'd like to help you remember my name and, you know, my name is Lisa and pointing to the name tag and using no time delay and then immediately um, the memory response is expected for, um, we'll say, Ron to say, you know, what is my name? And he responds, Lisa, and then Lisa says, that's right. We're going to keep on trying to remember that and then give a five-second delay, and then Ron, you say, Ron, what's my name? And then he says, Lisa, and, and you keep going through this, and it's it's just spelt out, um, you know, that you keep going over this, and then there's a, you know, a 10-second, a 20-second, a 30-second um, delay in terms of, of going through this process. I would think... Um, you know, that, you know, simple exercise alone um, could be really helpful for families who are who are really struggling with that name issue, because it's just such a such a pressure point for so many um, that I see. Is that is that one that you see people tackle? Um, You know, uh, it uh, is. It's an easy one to start with. mm -hmm. It makes both the person with memory loss feel good to remember their loved one's name, but it also makes the healthcare, the uh, family member um, feel good as well. And one important thing that you mentioned when you were giving that example is that in the book we, we talk about, uh, you know, Lisa wearing a name tag. We suggest to family members that they do wear name tags around their loved ones that have dementia to take the pressure off of the person with dementia. Um, But we also ask, um, we also suggest that we develop visual cues for people with dementia so that the answer to the question or the the piece of information that they're trying to recall using spaced retrieval is written down for them as a visual cue, and this helps with success. Mm-hmm. So you might have a note that's the answer to the information that someone is recalling that's on, um, attached to their walker or on their wheelchair or next to their favorite chair where they sit or, um, or a, as simple as a name tag if you're teaching someone your name. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's great. Um, you've got another example in here. Um, you've got five easy steps for Gina and Bill. And um, the goal here is to get her to remember the location of her glasses. And you note that the lead question that Bill will ask Gina is, where do you keep your glasses? And Gina's response will be, on the kitchen table. And then Bill will walk over to the kitchen table with Gina um, to make sure that she sees and understands that her glasses are there. And, uh, you know, again, you've, you've written this out really simply for people to be able to, because it, it can sound, um, I think, for some um, a little complicated, but if you get the book, um, you really have broken it down so easily with these examples that I think, uh, you know, I think it'll be 
um, much easier to implement than than what you might think because it it all it really is very natural conversations, and it's not like you have a, a time you know a, a watch timer you know right there, um, but you know those seconds are something you can count off in your head, and you've got. Um, some forms here that people can use to kind of keep themselves on track in terms of the time intervals and what was the verbal response. Did they get a response? Was it correct? Yes or no? Um, or maybe there was, um, you've got an NR here, which is no response at all um, as well. So, um, you know, it's, I think it's just a really, um, you know, it's a great tool that um, people can, like you said, both family and professionals can implement, you know, with this. And it's just a matter really of us slowing down and um, paying attention to the cues of a person and um, help embedding that that memory. Um, and I also liked when you said, you know, using the, the name tag, you know, it's just another cue um, with people. Um, you know, using using those extras, I think, can be can be very helpful to embed in the memory, um, just like, you know, multisensory um, can be helpful in terms of people recognizing who you are by if you're using the same tone of voice and maybe wearing the same cologne and approaching the same way and um, mm-hmm. just those standard routines there. So um, I think that that's that is wonderful. Um, if somebody, you know, finds that, you know, this, this um, particular technique isn't working for them, um, do you have some suggestions for them to, to try it a, a, a different way or to do something else, Jen? Jeanette, why don't you answer that? Do you want that? me to take that one? Sure. Okay. So there are a couple things that can be done to modify the procedure to increase the likelihood of success. We recommend that you don't try them all at once, that you maybe change one thing at a time and give it a few tries before you decide if it's working or not working. But the very first thing we would recommend is changing around the lead question. Um, Change the way that it's asked maybe consider if the terminology needs to be changed, maybe the question needs to be shorter or maybe more directive of what you would like the person to respond with. Um, It is important if you change the lead question that you don't accidentally go back to your old terminology. Um, Consistency with the procedure is important. Um, So what I usually do, because I am very guilty of that, if I have some type of visual aid incorporated into the practice session, I I write my lead question on the other side of it so I can see it as well. Or if there is no visual aid, I have it um, written down in front of me. And I believe on our forms there's a place to write it as well if if someone might use the forms. Um, So make sure once that lead question is changed, you educate the person that it has changed, and um, try that a few set- sessions. Okay. If that isn't working, um, maybe try modifying the response. You might have asked the person to remember something that was a little too long to respond with, so shorten- shortening that up or changing the terminology that's expected, or maybe the physical piece if someone has to actually do something 
maybe that's too difficult. And the example with Gina and Bill, she was walking over to the table, but maybe she can't quite get to the table every time. Um, so changing the response might be another one. Again, if the response has changed, you need to stick with that new response every time. And then something else that can be done um, is changing those time intervals. I'm sorry, changing what was that? The time intervals? The time, yes. Okay. Yeah. So um, they can be longer or shorter. Um, they should never be equally spaced because the the procedure works because we're putting longer and longer periods of time in between practice. Mm -hmm. um, but, but sometimes maybe if someone is early on in Alzheimer's disease, some of those five second, 10 second, 20 second can become annoying. So maybe just doing five seconds and then 30 seconds and then a minute might be more useful. Um, or if someone is a little later in the disease, they might need more practice. So throwing in a few extra practices there. Okay. And then how often should they do these segments? And then Jeanette, I'll have you go ahead and answer that. Um, we see success maybe practicing any time from three days a week all the way up to every day during the week. Um, people do not have to go all the way to the 16 minutes every day. I think that can be very cumbersome. Um, but when family members are at home with their loved ones, it's something that can be easily incorporated into watching the television or dinner time or folding the laundry. Um, so as often as people are able to practice, that would be great. Um, but it should never be used as quizzing. So I would, I would set aside some time every day or however many days a week and then practice and then, and then end that practice for the day. Okay. Um, Jennifer, anything you wanted to add to that? I do. I think that Jeanette brought up a very good point that I just want to reinforce, and that is it's very important that, the, that we are consistent with the lead question and the response that we're asking for. And so when we're working with other healthcare professionals or when we're working with family members, it's important that they are asking the question in the same way and having the person practice the same response. Mm -hmm. And then also we try our best to minimize any errors. So if a person does answer incorrectly, we always give them the correct information immediately and then give them an opportunity to practice that right away because we learn by our mistakes. Children learn through their mistakes. People with dementia can't learn through their mistakes. If they make a mistake, they will can and and repeat that mistake, they will learn the mistake. Mm -hmm. So we want to try and and set the situation up so it reduces the the frequency of errors and gives them as much success as possible. I think that's a really good point because, I mean, even, uh, and I'm going to relate this to, um, we just got a new puppy. And it's like if we're all using different verbiage, you know, mm -hmm. the poor dog doesn't know what we're talking about. You know, is he going in the kennel? Is he going in the cage? Is he going, in, you know, is he going in timeout? Right. What is it? And we've got to be consistent. And, 
You know, we do that. I mean, we do that all the time with people. We're not consistent. And then we wonder why things, you know, take longer or get, you know, kind of muddled up. And, um, you know, we have to look at ourselves as to what's what's the issue here. Um, because some, sometimes, many times, it's us, you know, just right. making it more confusing um, than it has to be. Mm-hmm. And um, that is just such a, I think, a critical, critical piece um, yeah. with it. And it's something really simple to correct. It doesn't, it doesn't cost you any more time. It doesn't cost you any more money. Um, it's just really about consciously caring and, um, you know, listening to yourself. And, um, you know, if you want to develop that change, then, you know, that, that consistency piece is just so huge. And everybody pretty much dealing with dementia realizes how important routine is. Well, the routine of what we say is just as important as yes, well. Yes, it is. That's, that's right. Then people with dementia will rely on that routine if they use their procedural memory for that. So anything that we can do to support that will have much better outcomes. Yep, yep. Um, can this approach, um, I'm assuming, can be used with um, additional people, not just people with Alzheimer's or dementia, but just, you know, with the public in large in our day-to-day lives? And um, Jennifer, I'll let you answer that one if you don't mind. Sure. This is a technique that can be used for people with or without memory impairment to learn new information. It's a very effective way to learn by practicing information over increasingly longer intervals of time. So instead of sitting and practicing something or trying to learn something for sitting there for an hour going over it and over it and over it, you, it's much a much more effective way to learn by practicing it for 15 minutes now, practicing it for 15 minutes later on the, in the day, practicing it again for a few minutes in the evening. And so anyone can use this strategy. It's been shown to be used with children, with college-age um, adults, with older adults, but also with people with a variety of, of um conditions that cause memory loss, such as vascular dementia, um, Parkinson's disease, um, what else, Uh, Jeanette, have I missed anything? Yeah, Um, people who have memory loss from stroke or traumatic Mm -hmm. brain injury, Um, I don't know if you said Parkinson's disease, any other type of dementia, not just Alzheimer's disease, Mm -hmm. Um, MS also, there's it's been used with people with memory loss or multiple sclerosis. Um, so it's it's been applied in a wide variety of populations very successfully. Um, wouldn't this work well with, I mean, even just children and teenagers as well? I mean, and with teenagers, you're probably not going to get them to sit still to go through the process because they know it all. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but um, I'm just thinking even with, with small children. Um, oh, and- Definitely. I used to do it for the nighttime routine with my daughter when she was younger because I would send her upstairs to brush her teeth and put her pajamas on and put her clothes away and she would do one thing and then forget the rest of the things that she needed to do. And so I used to say to her, you know, tell her what I wanted to do and then say, now what are you supposed to do when you go upstairs? And it was funny, uh, several years later when she was older and really didn't need it anymore she said to me one night 
Mommy, will you play that game with me again when you at, where you ask me what I'm supposed to be doing when I go to bed? <laughs> so um, you don't have to, um, although in therapy we sit down and have a formal training session with someone, a, a formal strategy practice session, you can, um, as long as you're spacing out the intervals, it you can also have success with this by practicing it in a very casual way. Okay, great. Well, I think that that's, and that's good to know. And I think, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, if I might say something too, what I like about family members doing this, as Jennifer said, as speech language pathologists, we have a very formal session. Um, but what I like with families is that they can take their time and take as many days as they need to practice until it's learned. So um, while medical professionals sometimes have time constraints, families can really take their time to find success. Okay. Well, that's that's great to know. And I think just knowing that this can apply to more than just dementia, I think, uh, and can and make their lives better as a whole can just be a relief because sometimes we think that, you know, it's just for a certain thing, and that really isn't true. And when we know that, you know, this can really be something natural that we that we kind of put in our toolbox for living life with a lot of different people, then all of a sudden it it becomes easier. Because um, I think we, I, yeah. I think in our minds we just make everything hard. <laughs> you know, yeah. It, yep. it, One thing that Jeanette did in the book is to provide an overview of a very comprehensive overview of just about all of the research that's been done in space retrieval over the past 20 years and more. And so she gives an overview of each article, um, who did the research and what was taught using space retrieval and then the outcomes of the research. So for people who want to learn more or try this with other populations, that's a great place to start to look at that timeline. Wonderful. Well, this is this has been a great conversation, and um, you know, I, I hope that many will go um, buy your book. I I think it's um, you know it's an evidence based um, memory intervention, and I think there's things that we can all learn. I think you've written this um, very simply for people to really be able to follow. Um, through the examples that you've given here and the the tools, um, you know, just even from the charting and stuff for people to be able to look at where it takes the scary out of it in terms of trying a, a new approach because sometimes we we just think, oh, that's just too much work, you know, and, and it really it really isn't um, nearly as complicated as we sometimes try to make it out to be. That's right. And um, you've got some, you know, blank forms in here so people can make copies of these things, um, you know, if they're trying certain tasks. Um, so that's, that's a wonderful, uh, again, a wonderful support for them as well. Um, Jeanette, any, any last-minute things that you want to cover that we haven't covered? Um. Just something that you said, the forms are available for copy, but um, with the purchase of the book, I believe there's also a code that people can download the forms online and print them out. Oh, okay. Oh, that's even... They don't have a copy machine. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. That makes it even easier. And 
And for, for healthcare professionals that are interested in learning more about this, we both teach all over the country teaching professionals how to implement this in their healthcare settings. Um, so we're always available to help organizations learn more and, and do staff training. Okay, great. And um, what is the best contact information for them to, to reach you, Jennifer? Um, that would be through my website. Um, my website is brushdevelopment.com, and my email address is jennifer at brushdevelopment.com. There is a Contact Us page at Brush Development, and um, you can also look and see where um, I might be speaking or teaching about dementia and uh, space retrieval. I list upcoming workshops on the site as well. Okay, wonderful. And how about you, Jeanette? What's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, Probably email account. Okay, can you say that one more time? You're cutting out a little bit. I don't know if you're in a bad zone or. <laughs> oh, I haven't moved. I apologize. Oh, it happens. My Gmail, my Gmail account is probably the easiest way. It's just my first initial J, mm-hmm. and then my last name um, Benegas, which I think you'll have up on your site mm-hmm. at gmail.com. Okay. Okay. Well, I had a different one, so I will change that. Um, for you. So jbenegas at gmail.com. Okay. Yes. Wonderful. Well, again, ladies, I um, appreciate all of your work here. Now, one thing we didn't mention is how the heck do people get the book? What's the best way? Which, which way do you want to point them? The best way to get the book is through Health Professions Press. Okay. That is the publisher of the book. Okay, wonderful. And that's just www.health and then propress.com. Healthpropress.com. And just, um, you know, type in spaced retrieval step by step. Or you can put in the author's name, uh, Jennifer A. Brush or Jeanette E. Benegas, and you will be able to uh, find that book, I'm sure, very simply on their site. Um, and another co-author with you, it looks like, is Gail M. Elliott as well. Um, I, yeah. I, I thank you so much for being with us and, and sharing this new technique with our audience. I'm sure it will help many out there um, live better with this disease. So thank you. Thank you very much. We enjoyed our time with you this afternoon. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Lori. Yep. Bye now. Um, Bye-bye. For those of you that uh, are new to Alive and Social, you might want to check out uh, one of my cohorts, Apples to Apples. They are on Monday at 2.30 Central Time, and that is Scott and Drew Applebaum. They're a father and son team who discuss sports. And you can find out if father always knows best or not. You can also check out Joan of Art, and she does a podcast on Alive and Social that investigates and celebrates people who make art. And it's kind of interesting uh, conversations that she has there. As for Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, our last show, we just had on um, uh, Silish uh, Mishra from India. And he's a social entrepreneur and the founder of Silver Innings. And um, he opened up an assisted living elder care home there, uh, which is a, a new concept over in India. We also had on prior to that Didi uh, Footer, 
who was on a journey with her dad and his dementia, and um, she is now uh, starting to pull together ice cream, kind of social gatherings, because her dad liked ice cream, uh, to help people with dementia connect. Our um, our next show will be uh, next Tuesday, so check in for that. Uh, we also rolled out on Alzheimer's Speaks a brand new platform called Conscious Caring Resources, and we had our uh, first episode on um, May 4th, and if you go to our website, alzheimerspeaks.com, you will find it on the homepage. If you, by chance, are listening to this later on down the road, just go to our initiatives and projects and you'll see it there. But our first guest was uh, Paul Ann Gordon, who was diagnosed with uh, vascular dementia. And she has written a booklet that can be purchased on Amazon called Vascular Dementia, an Inside Perspective. Uh, she just has some great insights to help uh, both family and medical professionals um, as well. Let's see, what else can I tell you? We did our dementia chats um, this week and um, had a great conversation about uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day and our experts living with dementia. Talked about um, how they feel about these days as being parents now with dementia and then also the loss of their own parents and how they cope with that. Um, There was a... um, a blog post I did called Third Mother's Day Without Mom, Feeling Lost and Privileged, that might help you if you're struggling with the loss of a parent. Um, it really made me reflect on just the gratitude um, for uh, having my mom in her life and um, all the lessons that I learned. Uh, before signing out, just want to um, tell you that we do have some free tools that you can sign up for on alzheimerspeaks.com. Uh, Just become a member, and one of those tools is called Your Memory Chip, and it teaches us to focus not so much on the tasks that we have to do, but in order to be really person-centered, we need to focus on truly just them, not the tasks. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? Till next time, have a great week. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.